Notice that when Xerxes is feeling sad, he doesn't turn to God. Who does he turn to? His buds. You know, like that commercial, grab some buds. He's just going to grab his buds. And when he's feeling this emptiness inside, he misses his wife. He doesn't turn to God. He turns to give me virgins. Give me more women. Give me more. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but he's a Persian. He doesn't know God. That's true. You're right. He does. So, so how could we fault him for, you know, not trying to turn to anything and everything but God since he doesn't know God? He thinks he's God. But we know God. <laughs> and we do the same thing. We turn to anything and everything but God first. When we're sad, we go to our friends. We go to our spouse. We go to our children. We go to the golf course. We go to the bar. When we're needing something, we fill it. Another boat, another video game, another whatever. M maybe what we should do is try God first. How about just try it for a week? I think you might like it. The other thing is, is that it is true. Xerxes doesn't know God. And we probably should have compassion for him or, or at least compassion for people that we know who don't know God because they have no choice but to turn to anything and everything but God when they're feeling empty and we're all feeling empty. So maybe what we should do is prove to our friends or, or show them in some way. Now, I think we should prove to them that Jesus really does satisfy. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of hard to prove to your friends that Jesus is satisfaction when you're not satisfied. That's something to think about. Maybe jot that down, pray about that, wrestle with that, get some satisfaction. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, you, I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to sing. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to see, so now the stage is set. We've got Xerxes. He's got a hole in his heart. He's trying to fill it with all these virgins. There's also a hole in the kingdom, and we need someone to become the new queen. Who will be the new queen? And then the camera's going to pan over to this little town just outside of Susa in this little bitty house right, right about there, I think. And we're going to meet Esther. And it says this. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, that means the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of and the son of, and the son of, and a Benjamin. And he had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jochaniah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither a father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Higai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in charge, in, 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 you know, in the custody of this guy. So there we are. We just met Esther. Three weeks in, we finally meet her. And if I can be honest, it's kind of anticlimactic, didn't you think? She didn't say anything. She didn't do anything. She's just kind of passively being pushed off into this bachelor program, the Bachelor Persia. Uh, but there's a lot that is kind of being said. We no, at least know three things about her. One, she's an orphan and she's being raised by this dude Mordecai. Two, she has two names. That's kind of interesting. We'll talk about that in a sec. And three, she has a stunning figure. I don't know, you know what, what does that look like in, in Persian? <laughs> and she's pleasing to look at. I don't think I need to unpack that. I think we know what that means. So let's, let's talk about this dude, Mordecai. There's actually a lot being said there. And you can see by the number of words. But let me, let me just 
talk about it a little bit. First thing that jumps off, off the page, especially if you're a Jew reading this, is that his name is Mordecai. What kind of name is that? Does it sound Hebrew to you? It's not. It's Babylonian. He has a Babylonian name. He's taken that name from the Babylonian pagan god, Morduk, the god of war. So he's named after a pagan god. Doesn't sound like a holy man, does it? Sounds like someone who's trying to fit in. He's taken the name of a pagan god. And it also says this. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the capital of the world. And if you were a Jew reading this in the Old Testament, for instance, that would jump off the page to you. What? What's he doing there? What's a Jew doing in Persia? What's a Jew doing in the capital of Persia? He's supposed to be where? Anyone know? In Jerusalem. That's right. The, the, the city of peace, God's city, the, 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 the promised land that God gave to his people. So the author hints a little bit about it, how Mordecai got away from Jerusalem. And that is, there's the story in the Bible where God is, in a sense, putting Israel in timeout. You know this story, right? They're horribly disobeying God. They're following after other idols. God says, okay, I've warned you once. I've warned you 800 times. It's time for me to just put you in timeout. So we sent them away. This is called the dispersion. They were sent out of Jerusalem and they were living in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar conquered them, took them to Babylon. You might remember Daniel. He got thrown in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> they were in a fiery furnace. They were all taken by Nebuchadnezzar. So Mordecai and his family are contemporaries of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> I kind of wonder if maybe Mordecai didn't know them, you know? Maybe they were on that same bus together on the way from Jerusalem to Babylon. At least Mordecai had to have heard the story. Dude, there's this guy named Daniel, who got thrown in the lion's den. The lion didn't even eat him. <laughs> I mean, I, I, think he's, I think he probably knows this story. So they moved to Babylon. They're away from God's land, God's promised land. Now, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and his predecessor is, anyone know? His name is Cyrus. Cyrus becomes his predecessor. And Cyrus told the Jews, y'all can go back home. God basically says, okay, your timeout is over, go back home. And Isaiah at that time says, we need to go home because this is God's place. This is where God dwells and we need to go back. So you can read in the book of Ezra, their journey back. Or you can read in the book of Nehemiah, how they go back and rebuild the temple. Now, not all the Jews went back. Some of the Jews says, I don't want to rebuild the temple. I don't want to do all this work. I'm going to stay in Babylon. I'm going to stay in Persia. And some of them even went to the citadel. That's the capital of Susa, which is, I mean, the capital of Persia, which is the wealthiest city in the world. So what did Mordecai do? Did he go back to Jerusalem? No, he went to Susa. So is Mordecai walking with God? The answer is no. He's not walking towards God. He's not walking with God. He doesn't have a temple. He can't make sacrifices for his sins. There's no high priest. He's walked away from all of that to the richest city in the world. So he's walking away from God. And that's, as we've said before, this is sort of a godless book. There's no mention of God. There's no prayer. Mordecai kind of exhibits this man who's got one foot in, what is it? He's a Jew, but then the other foot firmly planted in worldliness. You could say he's a lot like Lot. You know, he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's living in Persia. Interesting. I, I wonder how different it is from you and I. We don't live in Jerusalem. We kind of live in Persia. We have the bachelor program. 
We're not much different than that culture. The you could say one of the richest countries in the world. Sex is the god of America. We we know that. We live in that culture. I wonder if you're thinking in your mind, I'm I'm not so different than Mordecai. Yes, I'm a Christian, but no, I'm not really following Jesus. I'm not an atheist. I believe that there's a God, but I'm not really walking with him. I haven't talked to him in a while. I wonder if maybe we should discuss that. Um, and, and here's the way I think of it, because I think, I read an article once, Americans are really good at this thing called compartmentalization. Have you heard of this before? It means you put your life in compartments. You say, I'm a Christian when I'm at church. I'm maybe even at home, I'm a Christian. But then at work, I'm one thing. And on the baseball team, I'm another thing. And, you know, whenever I'm on the golf course, I'm another thing. And, you know, and, and when I'm trying to sell, you know, my product, I'm a totally, you know, I'll be whatever I need to be in order to make the sell. We, we, we can compartmentalize our lives. And I don't know about you, but I am good at this. You know, I used to be a youth pastor. I'd hang out with the kids and burp and fart and do funny things. And then I'd go home and be sophisticated and drink expensive coffee. Do you guys compartmentalize? So here's the question. How are you one person in one context and then a different person in an altogether different context? Or in other words, in what ways are you like Mordecai? You're Persian, you're Babylonian, and you're a Christian. Okay, well, let's move on. Um, so now we get to this verse here. Uh, we're going to meet um, a little bit more about Esther. It says, now when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Xerxes, after being 12 months under the regulations for women through this 12-month boot camp, since there was this greater period of the beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments. When the young women went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her so she could wear whatever jewelry, whatever clothes she wanted to wear to go from the king's harem to go into the king. So in the evening, she would go in and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Sh Shazgaz. That's an interesting name, isn't it? <laughs> One of you guys should name your son that. Shazgaz. The king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So here's the situation. These women, after soaking in potpourri for, uh, for a year, potpourri, however you pronounce it, why do they spell potpourri if it's pronounced potpourri? It's French. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> so they're soaking in this stuff for a year. I mean, they've got to be soft and, and sweet and they smell good. And then they go into the king. They get to wear whatever they want. They get to take whatever jewelry they want. And then they have their one night with the king to impress him. And then after that night, they leave the harem and go to the concubines. Does that make sense? So they leave. You're done. You've had your chance. Now you're going to the concubines. And what happens to them is they have to sit there for the rest of their lives. And if the king remembers their name, he can call them back. But chances are he's not going to. But they're not allowed to go back into the world. Isn't that interesting? They have to sit in this palace. I mean, they're going to be taken care of. They're going to get to eat. They get to keep that jewelry. But in the end, that's it. The king's not going to let them go back into the village and get married to another man or sleep with another man. This is the king's woman. He's, she's been branded, and now she has to stay in the palace. Interesting. Now, we didn't talk about Hadessa's two names, so let me just talk about that real quick. She has two names. Um, kind of like Mordecai's got one foot in, is a Jew, and one foot in Persia. Esther really does have two different 
maybe the identity. She's, she's Hadassah and she's Esther. So her first name is Hadassah. And I just think, obviously, I think it's a beautiful name. I like the name. Ever since I first heard the name, I thought, I want a name. If I ever have a daughter, I want to name her Hadassah. It's a pretty name. It's a Hebrew name, and it literally means myrtle tree. I don't know if you've ever seen a myrtle tree or not. You can Google it on your iPhone, and you'll see pictures of it. They're, not, they're all right. They're a pretty tree. <laughs> uh, but myrtle in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is often seen as a referent for God's righteous ones. There's visions that Jeremiah has. There's visions that Zechariah has. Some prophets have these visions where Jesus is walking among the myrtle trees. And so he's saying that myrtles are a reference to God's righteous one. So Hadessah means myrtle and myrtle means righteous one. That's cute. But Esther is her Persian name. And it either comes from the Persian goddess Istar where we get Easter from, or it could also mean hidden, or maybe it means both. <laughs> Commentators argue. <laughs> what I think is interesting is that her name is Righteous One in Hebrew, and she chooses a Greek name, a, a, a Persian name, in order to kind of hide out among the Persians, in order to blend in and fit in, just like Mordecai did. And she chooses the name that means hidden. <laughs> so she's hiding with the name that means hidden. So you got this righteous girl who's hiding out in the palace of King Xerxes, and her name means hiding out. I like this story so far. I want to talk more about that, but we don't, we don't have time. We got to move on. So she is going to go into the king next. Let's see what happens. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. This is verse 15. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace, the king loved Esther. And we have to be careful with that word loved. It doesn't mean he fell in love with her and he stopped looking at girls from that point on. Um, stopped playing the Bachelor Persia game from that point on. Stopped messing around with his harem and his concubines. That, that's not what that word means. It, it, it could literally mean he just lusted after her. We see it a lot in the Bible with Tamar and De, De, Delilah. I mean, the, the word love doesn't always mean, oh, they're in love. They're drawing hearts on the tree. You know, that's not what's happening here. I don't think. So he loved her more than all the other women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. I think if we were watching this on the reality TV program, we would all be pulling for Esther. I mean, first of all, we know that she's the hero of the story, right? So she's going to win. We already know that. I, I don't want to spoil it for you, but you know if the camera pans in on this little orphan girl after all that mess, you know who's going to win. We already know. But I think if we were watching this on a reality TV show, we'd all be rooting and pulling for Esther. And the reason why I think that is because of this word favor. You see it a lot. If you read all the verses, she's, she wins favor immediately with the eunuch that's taking care of her. She wins favor with the, her competitors. These girls around her, they like her. She's, you know, they want to make an alliance with her. She wins favor with everybody, it says. And she was winning favor with all who saw her. So that's including you and me while we're watching it on TV. We're like, I hope she wins. And what is interesting about that is the word favor literally can be translated grace. In fact, it does translate it grace, right? It says favor, grace. It, says it just uses those words simultaneously. And so what's happening here, and this is a concept, you probably know this already, all throughout the Old Testament, God shows favor. He gives grace to certain people. You might remember Joseph. He got thrown into slavery. He's hanging out at Potiphar's house, and it says, and God gave him favor. And Potiphar gave him the keys to the kingdom. Then he got thrown in jail and God gave him favor and the jailer gave him the keys to the jail. 
God is giving favor to Joseph, for instance, and he's giving favor to Esther. This woman, this orphan girl, all of a sudden has got all this grace, all this favor from God, and God's just working it out so that she's winning. She's winning the hearts of everyone, including Xerxes. Now, here's what's interesting. I know the text doesn't say that, right? It doesn't say, and God gave her favor. And God pulled the string so that everyone liked her. That's not what it says. But I know that's what the author means by using this word favor in grace. So by way of encouragement, Esther is far from God. I don't even really know if she knows God, right? I don't know what Mordecai's telling her. All I know is that she grew up in Susa and she's a Jew with a, with a Persian name. We don't see her talking to God. We don't see her talking about God. She may not even be walking with God at all. And yet God is with her and finding favor and giving her favor to win the hearts of everyone. And so in your life too, you may feel like God's not there, but he's with you. I I know that he is. You may feel like you've run from him or you haven't talked to him in a long time, but it doesn't matter. He's with you. You may not be with him. He's with you. That's good. Can I get a amen? Amen. Maybe you needed to hear that tonight. I did. I needed to know that even though sometimes I get mad at God, sometimes I run from God, he's there. He's running right behind you. Well, let's see what happens. It says, And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Kind of what frustrates me a little bit about this, these last couple of verses is that it skips all the juicy details. What happened? All we know is Esther goes in, a contestant, and comes out, a queen. All we know is that she's winning favor. It's her turn to go. She goes in, and she won. The end. But I'm kind of thinking, but what happened in there? What did she do to win? Now, some people at this point in the story, maybe you've heard this before, they try to tell the story in a way that makes her look really good. Maybe she went in and read the Bible to him. (laughs) (laughs) Told him a story, you know, about the ancient God of Israel. Maybe you've seen the movie One Night with the King. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I like the movie. When when I made a video about why we named our daughter Hadessa, I used a lot of clips from that movie. I do. I like the movie. I wish Xerxes was a little scarier looking in the movie. But one thing I didn't like about the movie is that's how they portray it. She goes in and she's got this necklace and the necklace has got little letters flying on the wall and she just wins his heart. And you get the sense that maybe she didn't sleep with him. He just fell in love with her for her mind. I think that's a stretch. I mean, lots of reasons. Let me just give you uh, lots of reasons. One, we know Xerxes. (laughs) He's all about his glory. He wants a hot wife. He thought Vashti was hot. He wanted to show her off. We know Esther. What we know of Esther is that she's being raised by Mordecai and she has a great figure and she's pleasing to look at. So we know that Xerxes has a harem of women and he's getting one every single. So what do you think happened in that room? Did she sleep with them? Why is it that we feel the need to clean the story up a bit? I mean, I'm thinking she slept with him. I'm thinking that's that's what Xerxes does. That's what this whole bachelor thing is about. Of course she does it. How else is she gonna win? But the Bible doesn't say what happened. 
The Bible doesn't say she read him a Bible story. And the Bible doesn't say she shared the four spiritual laws and he became a Christian. The Bible just says she went in and she won. Some hero, when you think about it, is, is, is why is Esther the hero of this book? I mean, if you think about it, she's breaking every rule in the book. She's not living in Jerusalem. She's supposed to be living in Jerusalem. She's not following Jerusalem's diet. She's following Xerxes' diet, which means she's probably eating bacon. She's she's not worshiping God. She's far from God. She's marrying a foreigner. And if you know anything about the Bible, it's God's rule. You should never marry a foreigner. You gotta kill those foreigners. You have got to be a Jew. You gotta be pure. You gotta be circumcised. You cannot marry some Persian Babylonian God. She's broken every rule in the book. And now she's a part of this bachelor Persia program and she's sleeping with the main dude and she wins. She gets the pot of gold and she gets the guy. In your heart of hearts, do you want to say, whoa, go Esther, you're our hero. I don't. I kind of think, some hero. Hmm. Okay, so I mentioned earlier when we first launched this series but the reason why I think Esther is an important book for us at Missio Day is because the story forces us to ask ourselves, how do you live in a cultural context when you are the religious minority? In other words, the story of Esther is about this religious minority, these Jews who are living in Persia, where sex is God, where Xerxes is God. How do they live there without compromising their faith but at the same time, influencing the culture. At Missio Day, our third mission statement is culture. We want to influence culture. I believe Jesus said, do not take them out of the world, but leave them in the world so that they might influence the world. As you sent me, I'm sending them into the world. How do we go? How do we live in America? Have one foot, in a sense, in our faith with Christ, but another foot on the mission field where we're trying to make an impact. How do we do that without compromising? How do we do that without becoming worldly in the bad sense? How do we do that better than Esther, perhaps? Do we do it better than Esther? Should we sign up for The Bachelor? (laughs) American Idol? Surely you've thought about this. There's a gray area. We live in a country where sex is God and money is God and God is not. So here's a discussion question. How can we be sent into our culture? And I use the word are because I want you to think about your own culture, not just necessarily, you know, the culture, but your culture, while at the same time not compromising or becoming worldly. And then to tag on to that, how are you living missionally? Meaning, how are you being a missionary in your culture? Does that make sense? So two questions. How do you do it without compromising? And how are you doing it? Three minutes. All right, so let's conclude. If Esther is such a horrible heroine, why would anyone name their daughter after her? <laughs> I named my daughter after her. Oh, yeah, you're heathen too. It's okay. Oops. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> Did we make a mistake? When I was telling my wife the story, she's like, maybe we made a mistake. I don't want to name our daughter after some girl who played the Persian bachelor and got hooked up with the king of Persia, the god of, you know, Persia. Well, I don't think we made a mistake, and here's why. This is important. There are two ways to read the Bible. The first way to read the Bible is in a very religious way. We read it 
like a religious person reads it. And here's how a religious person reads the Bible. There's good guys and there's bad guys. And you want to be a good guy. So try to be like David. He was a good guy. Try to be like Moses. He was a good guy. Don't be like the bad guys. For instance, Abraham, he was a good guy because he trusted God and he almost killed his son. <laughs> but Lot, his brother, he was bad because he chose purposefully to live next to Sodom and God destroyed that place with a ball of fire. How about Jacob and Esau? <laughs> Jacob, he was good because he listened to his mommy and he knew how to cook. But Esau, he was bad because all he cared about was eating meat and hunting. And he sold his birthright for a pot of meat stew. How about David? He was good because he trusted God and he killed the giant. But Saul, his contemporary, he was bad because he didn't listen and he kept the sheep when he should have killed the sheep. The problem with that way of reading the Bible is just that it's wrong because Abraham and Jacob and they're not really that good of guys. For instance, Abraham sold his wife out to foreign kings two times. He was afraid the king was going to kill him. So he said, here, take my wife. He did it twice. You'd think he would have learned the first time. You'd think she would have had something to say about it, you know? I would imagine she would have ignored him for the first six months of their, you know, reunion. And then he did it again. Maybe that's why he did it again. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> what about Jacob? Oh, goodness. I could go on all night about Jacob. He was the furthest thing from a good guy, if you ask me. He was a liar, a, a manipulator, a thief. He actually stole the birthright from his brother by tricking his dad. And then he had to run away because he was in trouble. And when he ran away, he hooked up with two girls and he married both of them, Rachel and Leah, or Leah, Princess Leah. And, and while he was there, he tricked and stole from their father. And he taught them how to trick and steal from their father. So now they had to run away from his father. He was a thief, a manipulator, a horrible person, if you ask me. And if you ask me, he becomes the model of the worst dad. He gets the worst, happy Father's Day, he gets the worst dad award. He was the one who made Joseph the coat of many colors and showed him favoritism, making all the other brothers jealous. He pitted the brothers against the brothers. He pitted the wives against the wives. Oh, I like your son better than her son. <laughs> he was a horrible man. Hey, you know what? God changed his name to Israel. That blows my mind. He wasn't a good guy at all. He was the poster child for a bad guy. What about David? He was a good guy. He, had, he was a man after God's own heart. That, that's why we want to name our kids David, right? We want our sons to be a man after God's own heart. But he also had a heart after another man's wife. And he slept with her. And he killed him. And they had a baby together. And that baby died, but then they had another baby. David and Bathsheba had another baby. And that baby becomes in the lineage of Christ. So you see, you can't read the Bible black and white. Good guy, bad guy. White hat, black hat. I want to be a good guy, not a bad guy. When religious people read the Bible like that, they totally miss God's favor, God's grace. And that is God gives it to Esther. She doesn't deserve it. She's living in sin. He gives it to David. He didn't deserve it. He was living in sin. He gives it to Jacob. 
Jacob deserved to die many times. And God just gives him favor and names him Israel and says, you'll be the father of my people. I don't get that. When we read the Bible, good guy versus bad guy, we rip grace, gospel, favor right out of the book. The other way to read the Bible, the correct way to read the Bible, the way we read the Bible is there's bad guys and then there's Jesus. And that's it. So don't try to be like David. Please, don't try to be like David. I made that mistake in my 20s, trying to be like David. And if David could do it, hey, so can I. <laughs> don't be like David, be like Jesus. Don't be like Jacob, be like Jesus. You can name your son David, you can name your son Jacob, because in the end, it's not their life that you're after, it's God's favor on their life that you're after. The whole Bible's about Jesus. He's the better everything. He's the better Jacob. He's the better Isaiah. He's the better David. He's the better Esther. I like, I just have to say it the way Keller says it. He always says it best. Jesus, and this is just a little snippet of a long sermon he does. You can find it online if you'd like to read it or listen to it. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserved so that like Jacob only received the wounds of grace to wake us up and to discipline us. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one and didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the better savior. He's better than Esther. He's better than David. And Esther is the hero of the story, but she's not so great of a hero, really. It's only because God's grace and God's favor was on her. Her name's Hadassah. It means righteous one, but she's not righteous. Wait a minute. She is righteous because God has imputed his righteousness on her. It's not hers. It's his. And so if you're here tonight, and you are, um, <laughs> I'd like for you to know that you don't have to try to be the good guy. You shouldn't try to be the bad guy. But in the end, the only good guy is Jesus. And his righteousness gets imputed, gets placed upon you when you accept him as your Lord and as your Savior. Religious people say, try harder, do better, be gooder, act like David, act like Abraham, act like Jacob. Non-religious people, Christians Followers of Christ say, Jesus is my savior. And without him, I'm a wicked, evil, compartmentalizational heathen. But praise be to God, Jesus has somehow found favor on me and given me grace. He is the better savior. Amen.